Amen. Well, hey, uh, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new with us, I want to welcome you again. My name is Ryan. I serve here uh, as one of the pastors and just want to tell you we're, we're really, really glad that you're here and would love to have you join us uh, for Starting Point uh, right after this uh, when we're done with the gathering here. Um, but uh, one thing I want to make you aware of before we jump into our text this morning, if you're going to be in town uh, on December 25th, on Christmas Day, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday this year, um, we will be gathering together. And so we'll have our normal gathering on Christmas Day, but it won't be at the normal time. We'll be gathering at 3 p.m. on Christmas Day. And so if you're in town uh, on Christmas Day, please make plans uh, to gather with us and to celebrate the birth of Jesus on uh, that day. But if you've got your Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 7, uh, book of Isaiah uh, chapter 7. Like you've heard, this morning uh, kicks off uh, Advent in the life of the church. And so Advent's a Latin word that just simply means appearance or arrival or coming. And so Advent is this season in the life of the church where we celebrate uh, the coming, the arrival of Jesus into our world, how he came and he took on our flesh and took on our humanity to come and rescue us. And it's also a season in the life of the church where we uh, look forward in hope and we aim to stir up hope and anticipation towards Jesus' second advent, the truth that he's going to come again uh, and make all things new. And so like you've heard to do that, we're going to spend our time over the next four Sundays in a couple different passages from uh, the book of Isaiah. Many people throughout church history have referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel because even though Isaiah is in the Old Testament, it was written hundreds of years before Jesus came uh, to our world. Unlike the four Gospels, uh, even with all of that, its witness to Jesus is just so rich and so crystal clear. This book is just so full of the Gospel. In fact, I think a lot of where the New Testament authors kind of get their uh, content and definition of the Gospel, like what the good news even means, I think they primarily draw it from the book of Isaiah, that the gospel, the, the good news is that God has kept the promises in Jesus that he has made to us uh, in this book. And so we haven't really just chosen four random passages, even though everything in Isaiah speaks uh, of Jesus' coming and his glory. We've uh, chosen four passages to want to really show you how this promise from God keeps building and building on itself and kind of stirs up this anticipation for the birth and the arrival of Jesus into our world. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to see uh, the promise of a son, the promise of a king, the promise of a kingdom, and finally the promise uh, of coming glory. Uh, but today, this morning, we're going to look first at the promise of a son from Isaiah uh, chapter 7. And so we're going to cover the first 17 verses this morning, but, but right here we'll just start by reading the first nine verses and then I want to kind of uh, show you where we're at in the biblical story and kind of set the context of the book of Isaiah, and then we'll walk through it. Sound good? All right, let's do it. Isaiah chapter 7, the first nine verses, the very word of God to us this morning. It speaks to us like this. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Yashub your son, 
at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Romalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Romalia, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That was clear as mud, wasn't it? Uh, let me, uh, we're going to have to cover a, a lot of ground and get some background real quickly, so buckle up. We're going to need all of this, uh, as you can see, if we're going to understand uh, what's going on here. And so as you read through the Old Testament story, you see eventually the people of Israel, uh, God brings them into the land and they establish themselves in the promised land uh, of Canaan. And once they're established in the land for a while, they want to set up a kingdom and have a king over themselves. And so they do that. And the first king they have uh, is King Saul. And King Saul doesn't do so hot. And so he's eventually replaced by King David. Once King David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne and really ushers the people of God into the high point of the Old Testament. I mean, uh, there's a lot of wealth and, and wisdom, peace and prosperity. God is dwelling among his people in Jerusalem at the temple. People are coming from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, every man and woman, it says, is under his vine and fig tree, which is Old Testament terms for like things are going well. Everything's really hunky-dory. Uh, but, but all of that doesn't last for very long because for all of Solomon's wealth and wisdom and prosperity, uh, he's an idolater. He worships other gods, and those turn his heart away from God. And so after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is a fool, and he ends up splitting the kingdom. And so the ten northern tribes of Israel go with Jeroboam, and they become known as Israel or the northern kingdom. Uh, and two tribes stick uh, in the southern kingdom, and so they're known as Judah, or the southern kingdom. And then through the rest of the book of First and Second Kings, we uh, get this kind of chronicle of these kings, and uh, in both the north and the south, it doesn't go well. Every king in the northern kingdom follows the pattern laid out by Jeroboam of uh, serving idols, worshiping other gods, and leading the people further into idolatry. Uh, and while Judah has a few better kings here and there, their story's much of the same. Many of their kings are uh, idolaters who lead the people astray as well. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God promised that if this was going to happen, if the people of Israel were going to continue to rebel against him and worship idols and go after other gods, and if the king was going to lead them into this, then he was going to carry out the curses of the covenant uh, that he made, that they made with him, and, and send them into exile, and so because of all of this idolatry, th this is definitely imminent. And so it's into this that the prophet Isaiah is sent. Isaiah is primarily sent to Judah, to the southern kingdom, to prophesy about what the Lord is going to do and how he's going to send both Israel and Judah into exile. But, but the reason that the 
Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel to so many is because of the richness of the promises of God in this book that even though exile and judgment and desolation is coming, it is not going to get the final word for God's people. God is going to act to restore his people and save them again. We're going to see that each of these next four weeks, and you see it here in chapter 7 as well, because, because here's what's going on uh, in chapter 7. If you want more on this at another time, you can go back and read 2 Kings 15 uh, and 16. That's where I'm drawing all of this from. But uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom. And Assyria, this foreign nation, is kind of the bully on the block at this time. They are uh, capturing and conquering and enslaving all of the nations around Israel and Judah and taking them back to captivity in Assyria. And so uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, which is this country kind of above Israel and below Assyria, uh, teams up and forms an alliance with uh, Pekah, or maybe Pekah, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, uh, who's the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, And they form this alliance, and they come to Ahaz, and they try to mount an attack against Ahaz and Judah, and they say, hey, you need to join our alliance against Assyria, and if you don't, we're going to conquer you, we're going to kill you, and we're going to set up a puppet king in your place, uh, the king of Tabeel. This is verse 6 of chapter 7. And so verse 2 tells us that when Ahaz and his people hear this, when they hear that they have come to mount an attack against him, that they uh, start trembling like trees shake in the wind. And so, you know, like uh, his knees are knocking, he's kind of peeing down his leg, the whole nine yards here, he is just absolutely terrified. And it's in this that it actually gets at what's the central issue of Isaiah chapter 7, which is faith. Because what's going on here, like Ahaz, all of us have Uh, problems in our lives, things that we don't know how to fix and things that cause us to fear. For Ahaz, it's this threat of an imminent attack, but for you, maybe it's been fear of the future and just all the uncertainty around that and the fact that you don't know uh, how to control that. Maybe it's fear of failure or fear of disease or fear of loss or financial fear, just fear that your past is going to catch up with you. Like, whatever it is, Uh, All of these things, all of us have these things in our lives uh, that are problems that we don't know how to fix and that make us afraid. And and what all of us do is in that moment, we look to someone or something to be the solution, to be the fix that's going to calm our fears and solve this problem. Uh, Whatever you look to in that moment, whatever you look to to do that in your life is what you're trusting in. It's what you have faith in. And you're going to do that. You're going to look to someone or something to fix your problem and calm your fear. You cannot escape it. I mean, this is why faith is really the central and defining aspect of our lives. Who we look to. What will we trust in? And so God is giving Ahaz the opportunity to trust him here. Because Isaiah comes to him when it says he's at the upper pool of the conduits of the washer's field. You know what that means, right? Like, what's Ahaz doing? He's checking his water supply. He's stockpiling, thinking, do I have enough to get us through this attack? Am I going to be able to do this? He's looking to himself. He's trying to depend on himself to be the solution. But again, God is going to give him this opportunity to turn from trusting in himself and to look to him instead. And so Isaiah comes to him with his son, Sher Yashub, which is a really great baby name if you're in the market for one. Um, we, we agonized really long and hard over whether or not we were going to name our daughter this. 
Uh, after a long process, we decided we weren't, and so this name is still on the table for you. Uh, but uh, if you look at the footnote, this name means a remnant will return. And so God's trying to encourage Ahaz. He's saying, hey, Ahaz, like whatever happens here, God's going to keep his people. A remnant will return. God is going to be faithful. And then God, through Isaiah, says, hey, don't be afraid of these two kings. These two kings, all this thing they've mounted against you, verse 7, it's not going to come to pass. It's not going to happen. God says these two kings uh, are like two smoldering stumps of firebrands, which is a, a pretty good insult if you can work that into a conversation, right? But, but God is saying, Ahaz, these two kings that you are so afraid of, that you think are so powerful and intimidating, to me they're basically like ground-out cigarette butts. Like there's just not anything to be afraid of. What they have purposed against you is not going to come to pass. It's not going to happen. And then uh, he gives this kind of poetic line about how the capital city of the country is the head of the country, and the head of that capital city uh, is the king. And so he says the head of Syria, the capital city is Damascus, and uh, Rezin is the king of Damascus, and Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, the, head, the capital city of Israel is Samaria, and Pekah is the king of Samaria, and they're both going to be destroyed. Like within 65 years... Israel is not going to even be a people anymore. They chose their own destruction by not trusting God and aligning themselves with Syria and looking to Syria to protect them. And now Ahaz and Judah have the same choice. Uh, he's saying, man, don't be afraid of them. Don't look to them because they are going to be destroyed. They are going to be taken care of. Because think about this. Like, if this poetic line is true, that the head of the country is the capital city, and the head of the capital city is the king, what does this say about Judah? The head of Judah is Jerusalem, and the head of Jerusalem is the son of David. So who has God made all of his promises to about how he's going to keep them and protect them and preserve them if they will just trust him? The king of Jerusalem, the son of David, right? God's saying, Ahaz, like, remember my promises. You have nothing to fear. I will keep you. I will protect you. Just trust me. God is giving Ahaz the opportunity to be God for him and to prove him true. But if Ahaz won't, he's going to fail. This is why verse 9 says, if you are not firm in faith, you won't stand firm at all. If he doesn't put his trust in God, he's going to sink. Which once again means that verse 9 puts the issue of faith front and center in our lives. It, it is just as true for us as it was for Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in faith in God, you are not going to stand at all. Because once again, look, all of us are going to look to someone or something to be the fix for our problems and the thing that calms our fears. We are all going to look to some Savior. A lot of times we look to ourselves to be our own Savior. We think if we can just educate ourselves a little bit better or try a little bit harder or scheme this a little bit smarter, we'll be able to root this problem out, but it doesn't work. A lot of us do this with religion. We feel like if I can start going to church and being involved more and morally cleaning up my life, that will be enough to fix my problem, but you're still trusting in yourself and it's all sinking sand. God is the only firm foundation, and God wants to be 
trusted. This is why he's offering Ahaz the opportunity to trust him. And look, we know that, that from 2 Kings chapter 16 that Ahaz has been uh, an absolute moral trash bag up to this point. He has been an idolater worse than any other king in Judah. But, but after all of this, God is still giving him this opportunity to prove him true and to be God for him. He's saying, Ahaz, come on, just trust me. Put your faith in me. I will do this. I will keep my promise to you. And look, the same thing is true for us. Like God is not up on a hair trigger in heaven just ready to pounce. Like He is incredibly patient with us sinners. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to trust him, even after we have blown so many opportunities. Uh, this is, he, he gives us these opportunities, and he does this uh, and offers us the opportunity to trust him and to prove him true and, and offers to be, give us this firmness in faith. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to be firm in faith in God and we're going to put our trust in God, then you have to know a little bit of what he's like, right? You have to know whether or not he's good for it. Because if you were like about to foreclose on your house and I came to you and I said, hey, don't worry about it. Like, I'll take care of it. Uh, you have nothing to fear. You should just trust me. You have a lot of reason to be worried about that, right? Because I don't have the money to pay off your house. But if like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos comes to you and says, hey, I, I heard about your situation. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it and make sure your house is paid off. Just trust me man, then you've got no reason to fear, right? Because those guys have some deep pockets. Well, this is what God is offering Ahaz. He's saying, like, hey, I'm the God who brought my people out of Egypt, who split the Red Sea, who provided manna in the desert, who has protected and provided and established them every step of the way. And he's offering the opportunity to trust him on the basis of who God is. Look at what God does here uh, in verse 10 and what he offers Ahaz. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And so God basically says, all right, Ahaz, blank check. Like, what do you want for me to prove to you that I'm going to keep this promise to you and you can trust me? Sheol is the grave. And so God's saying, make it as deep as the grave or as high as the skies, and I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll show you this to prove that I'm going to keep this promise to you. But Ahaz is like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to put God to the test. Which sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? And, and if you're kind of a Bible nerd, you know that like when Jesus is being tested by the devil in the wilderness... Uh, he says, you're not supposed to put God to the test like Israel did in the wilderness. And so it seems like Ahaz is doing and saying the right thing here, but he's not. It, when Israel put God to the test in the wilderness, the issue was that they didn't believe. 
even though God had brought them out of slavery to Egypt, they still didn't trust him, that he was going to provide for them, that he was going to protect them, that he was going to keep his word to them. That's what it means to put God to the test, to fundamentally not believe in him and say, I'm not going to believe you until you prove it to me. And even if you do prove it to me, I still may not believe you then. This is what Ahaz is doing. He's using religious language to hide his unbelief. Because we know from 2 Kings chapter 16 that instead of trusting in God, Ahaz goes to Assyria and and tries to get Assyria to defeat Syria and Israel on his behalf. He goes to the 6th grade bully to take care of the 3rd grade bully. Uh, But as I'm sure you probably know, what what usually happens there is when the 6th grade bully is done with the 3rd grade bully, uh, they turn back on you. This is what's going to happen. This is what verse 17 says is going to eventually happen to Judah and the southern kingdom as well. But once again, it shows that Ahaz fundamentally does not trust God. He does not want to believe in God. He wants to look to Assyria. But in the midst of this, uh, and because of this, uh, he's going to be one of the major reasons that that, uh, the southern kingdom is eventually sent uh, into exile as well. Um, because of this, uh, he's putting the messianic hope in danger, but in the midst of this, God is still going to give his people a sign. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In verse 14, he says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son who she's going to call Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it says the boy is going to grow up and eat curds and honey. He's going to be a really big fan of cookout. Uh, if you have not tried their cheese curds before, like, do that on the way home. It'll bless you. Uh, Merry Christmas. That has nothing to do with this text whatsoever. That's just free for you because I want to bless you this morning. Uh, but what it means when it says he'll eat curds and honey is that he's going to eat real human food because he's a human being. Uh, and before he's old enough, it says, to be able to reject the evil and choose the good. So before this boy, Emmanuel, is old enough to kind of know and understand right from wrong, the land of these two kings that Ahaz is so afraid of is going to be deserted. It's, they're going to be taken care of. But this prophecy ends with an ominous note in verse 17 that because of Ahaz's unbelief, what happened to Israel and Syria, what's going to happen to them is going to happen uh, to Ahaz, Ahaz and to Judah as well. Because Ahaz doesn't believe. He's one of the primary reasons that, that Judah is eventually sent into exile. Like we've seen, God gives Ahaz opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn around and to just trust him. At every mile marker, there was an exit where he could have got off. Like, you could get off the road to destruction here. You could turn around here. You don't have to keep going this way. But Ahaz just refuses to trust in God. And because of this, uh, he, he is putting Judah on the fast track to exile. Because really, what uh, is happening here, what Ahaz is doing here, is putting, putting the messianic hope uh, in danger. They're supposed to be looking for a king from the line of David to come and sit on the throne in Judah. But because of Ahaz's disobedience, really from this point forward, there isn't a true king of David on the throne in Judah. Until they're taken into exile by Babylon, every king is either a puppet king of Assyria or is being partly conquered by Assyria, and then they're eventually taken into exile in Babylon. And once Babylon takes them into exile... 
There's not really a true son of David on the throne again. Israel never, Judah never rules as a people. They go from being enslaved by the Assyrians and Babylonians, then to the Medo-Persians, and then to the Greeks, and finally to the Romans. Like because of Ahaz's disobedience and unbelief, the Savior of the world is going to be born into the poverty of his people. The rest of this chapter goes on to talk about how the land's going to be desolated. He's going to be born into the poverty of his people. He will be the king, but he will have no throne in Jerusalem to sit on, and his people are going to be ruled over by the Romans. Uh, but, but, but in the midst of all of this judgment still stands the Lord's promise. Right? Because even though Exile and judgment and desolation is going to happen because of Ahaz's unbelief. You still have this promise in verse 14 that the virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son whom she will call Emmanuel because God is once again with us. And if you notice verse 14, it does not say that a virgin will conceive. It says the virgin will conceive. And so Ahaz is given a sign for the future because as you uh, go on and read through the rest of the book of Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament, this doesn't happen. No virgin uh, conceives and gives birth to a son. No son is born who is named Emmanuel. But as you turn the pages to the New Testament, like we just read earlier in the gathering, uh, an angel comes to the virgin named Mary and says that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son who will be both the son of David and the son of God. And she rightly asks, how is that going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. And the, the angel says, the Holy Spirit's going to bring this about in you. And because he's going to do this, this child's going to be the son of God. He's going to be holy. And the gospel of Matthew tells us that when this son Jesus is born of the virgin Mary, it takes place to fulfill Isaiah 7:14, the virgin conceiving, giving birth to a son named Emmanuel, because God is once again with us. You see, in Jesus, God no longer simply dwells among us in a building like a tabernacle or the temple. Uh, he has truly come to be with us because in Jesus, He becomes one of us. Jesus, while remaining all that He is, is God, takes on what He is not and becomes truly and fully human. Uh, God was born into the darkness of his people's exile. He was born as the king with no throne to sit on and with his people being enslaved and ruled over by the Romans. But his defeat, uh, his birth means the defeat of all that could terrify us. Because as you go on in Isaiah chapter 8, you get this other promise for the future that our enemies, they can take counsel against us. They can uh, join in together and try to mount an attack against us, but it won't come to pass. It won't stand because Emmanuel, God, is with us. But the reason this can be true is because not only does Jesus come to be with us as a baby, he grows up and he lives the perfect human life that no king before him had lived. He's always faithful uh, everywhere where we are not, and he trusts God. And after living this perfect life of obedience, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, all of the darkness and judgment and exile that we deserve for our sin, he takes it upon himself and he pays for it all. He lets the darkness snuff him out and it does. It kills him and he dies, but he does not stay dead for long. 
Because our darkness cannot overcome him, he overcomes the darkness and raises himself up from the dead. And in his death and resurrection, listen to what Hebrews 2 says that he accomplishes. This is Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now here... Uh, here's the reality. There are a lot of things to fear in this world, and, and underneath all of those fears is this one, the fear of death. Like, we all know that we are going to die and stand in judgment before God, and it terrifies us. Like, no matter how much we might try to push this down or suppress this, we know that we are headed for this judgment, and so most of us live with this kind of low-grade anxiety that something is wrong and something is off and there's something that we need to fear in this life. And because of this fear and anxiety, what Hebrews is saying is that it leads us to enslave ourselves to things that we think are going to help this fear. So we have this fear and anxiety and we look to other things to be the thing that will fix this fear, calm it, and soothe our anxieties and that enslaves us. That pursuit enslaves us. And so what is that for you? How, how do you calm your fears when you're afraid? What do you fall back on? For some of us, uh, it's money. Some of us, we kind of think, you know, yeah, bad things might happen to me and to my family, but the comfort I can take is at the end of the month, I know we're always going to have enough in the account at the end of the month to make it. Like, whatever else might happen, I, I know that I'll always have that security blanket to fall back on. And so you just enslave yourself to the pursuit of working a little bit more and saving a little bit more and grinding a little bit harder because you feel like if you can just get enough in the account, that will be the comfort and security blanket that you need to get rid of these fears and calm these anxieties. And so when your anxiety spikes up, uh, you start checking your stocks and you start checking your savings account and you look to all of these things to kind of comfort your fear. But that's not all of us. For, for many of us, the way we do this is with achievement. When this fear creeps in of, man, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Am I going to be okay in the end? When this fear creeps in, what most of us do is we just push ourselves harder into our work to try to rack up more achievements and accomplishments because we feel like, man, that will be the comfort for us. The comfort of, well, uh, at least I got promoted, at least I got selected, at least I left a legacy and I was really well respected and liked at work. I'll be able to take comfort in that. Never mind the fact that you're going to do all of this work and then you're going to retire and maybe they throw you a party, maybe they give you a cake, maybe they don't, but like a year or two after that, once you're gone, they're going to forget that you ever even worked there. But we still think if we can just rack up a little bit more of these achievements, it's going to be the comfort that gets rid of these fears for us. For others of us, we do this with our family. When this fear of, am I good enough, have I done enough, creeps in, we just think, well, if I can just kind of have well-behaved kids, and if I can get that perfect Instagrammable life of the picture-perfect family who's always doing all these fun things and having all of this fun, then that will be worth it. That will be the thing that gets me. I'll be able to leave that legacy. And so you kind of throw yourself into parenting, not because you want to love and serve your children, but because you're trying to calm this fear and get rid of this anxiety. 
For some of us, we do this with religion. When this fear creeps in, we feel like, okay, I've got to go to church, and I've got to get more involved in church events, and I've got to do more stuff, and I've got to try to morally clean up and reform my life and be good enough. But the problem is, it, it never works, because how do you know when your good is good enough? Like, how, how, how do you know when you've done enough good that you can actually rest and relax and say, yeah, I know I've done enough to keep myself out of the red when it comes to judgment here? For some of us, what we do with this when this fear creeps in is we just seek to numb it through consuming. And so for some of us, we get this fear and anxiety that something's wrong in our life and something is off, and so we just fix that by shopping. Uh, whether it's online, whether it's in person, we go and we buy something new and we look for new things because we feel like that dopamine rush of getting something new will get rid of this anxiety, or you try to numb it by watching more Netflix or scrolling more on social media or just diving deeper into pornography because you feel like that will numb you away from this anxiety and this fear. Whatever it is that you look to to be this fix to calm your fears and get rid of your anxieties, Hebrews is right when it says that it enslaves us. It, it enslaves us to this pursuit of hopping on the treadmill of uh, running and always running a little bit more and going a little bit further, but that carrot always stays just a little bit far enough out of reach where we can never get a hold of it. And so it's not going to happen all the time. Like I said, most of the time this is just kind of a low-grade anxiety we feel that something is wrong in our lives, but there are going to be these times when you lay your head down on the pillow at night and everything is quiet and these thoughts come flooding in again of, man, have I done good enough? What's going to happen to me in the end? Do I measure up? Uh, does my life matter? Is God going to be okay with me? Is he going to accept me? And in that moment, the guilt and shame of your sins and your failures is going to flood in because, look, you know what you've done. You know the ways that you haven't measured up, not just to God, but even to these other things that we look to. You know you haven't even done enough to satisfy yourself there. You know that you don't measure up and no amount of trying to distract yourself with Netflix or social media or whatever it is is going to be the fix that will get rid of this fear and quiet down this anxiety. And But here's what Hebrews 2 said. Hebrews 2 said that in the coming of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he has defeated these things that enslave us to fear of death. In his death and resurrection, he has defeated death and the one who held the power of death, Satan, so that we would no longer have to be enslaved to this fear of death any longer. Because in Jesus' cross and resurrection, he took Satan's only power he had to accuse us away. This is why Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, before Jesus, we rightly feared condemnation and judgment that we rightly deserved for our sins. And, and Satan could terrify us and come to us and say, man, you're a sinner. You deserve judgment. Don't you know you're going to die for this? Don't you know you're never going to be able to overcome this? And he was right. Like this fear was real, and it's why we could not shake it. But that was before Christmas and the cross. Because if Jesus has come and on the cross has taken the condemnation that we deserve for our sin, 
What condemnation is there left for you to face? If God has already justified you, that means counted you righteous based on what Jesus has done and not based on what you have or haven't done, what higher court could Satan appeal to to say that you aren't really righteous? And if Jesus has paid for and has canceled out the record of debt that stood against you because of your sins in full, what payment is there left for you to make for your sins? And so when Satan comes to you and tries to accuse your conscience and remind you of your sins and your failures, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. When he comes to you and he says you're a sinner and you're a failure and you deserve judgment, you've got to say you're right. I am. I do. But Jesus isn't. And when God looks at me now, he does not see my sins and my failures. He sees Jesus. Yes, I am a sinner, but the last time I checked, that's exactly who Jesus came to die for. And while I was still weak, while I was still ungodly, while I was still a sinner, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. All of my sins, all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my condemnation was nailed to his cross. That's how I know that God loves me. That's how I know that God is for me. That's how I know that God is with me and not against me and is never going to turn his back on me. And and so listen, Christmas means that God has conquered the things that terrify us and make us afraid. And so even if those things aren't going to go away in our lives, they don't have to terrify and enslave us any longer. Because yes, the money really might not be in the account. The job really might not be going that well. Uh, The family situation might be an absolute mess, and sin might be getting the upper hand in your life. But Jesus is still on his throne, which means that your sin has been defeated, your condemnation has been taken, and the only thing that is left for you is life with Jesus. Like the, the worst thing that could happen to you if you are in Jesus now is resurrection and eternal life with Jesus. You realize that, right? Our life is the Lord's now. If you live, you're with Jesus. If you die, you're with Jesus. You could lose everything in this life, but you cannot lose Jesus because Jesus is not going to lose you. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that we sons and daughters of men could become sons and daughters of God so that we, who have done nothing but earn darkness and judgment, instead of experiencing that, would get to experience the light and life of knowing and having fellowship with God forever. And so Christmas, the good news of God with us, means that you know, it's, it's how you know you can trust God even when you're afraid. Because the God of the universe had to wear a diaper. Like the God who spoke the world into existence had to go through puberty. The, God, the, the one who the Bible says owned the cattle on a thousand hills spent three years poor and homeless. The, the one who is the judge of all the earth was put to a sham trial and was judged as a criminal even though he was innocent and was put to death and died a humiliating and excruciating death, and he did all of that for you. And if he has already done all of that for you, do you really think he's going to turn his back on you now? If if his love has already gone to those lengths, do you really think that you sinning against him this week is going to be the thing that makes him change his mind about you and go back on his promises to you? No, of course not, right? You have every reason 
to trust him. And that's what all of this comes down to. This is the central issue of this chapter. It's the central issue of our lives, faith. Who will you look to? Who will you put your trust in? What are you going to depend on to be the the solution that fixes your problems and calms your fears? If you want the only one who can deliver you from this slavery to the fear of death, if you want the only one who can reconcile you back to God, if you want this God to be your God, you can have him. You can have the good news of Christmas in your life. Just trust him. Come to him. Cling to him. Believe in him. And if you don't stand firm in faith in Jesus, you will not stand firm at all. God has come to be with us. And so don't miss the opportunity to be with him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. And thank you that in the face of very real fears uh, of things that can terrify us and make us afraid, that you have come to put to death and defeat all that could terrify us. And so, Jesus, would you help us to believe the gospel that you have come to deliver us from the fear uh, of death that enslaves us? come to set us free, and so would you help us to walk in that freedom? Whether we've been a Christian for decades upon decades, or whether we're not yet a follower of Jesus, would would this be our response in this moment? To trust, to trust in you, to not look to other things, to be the solution for us, to not look to ourselves, but to turn from ourselves and put our trust in you. God, would you help us to do that in this moment? Would you help us to stand firm in faith in you. Would you help us to believe your word on the basis of everything that you've already done for us? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.